Welcome to the Thriving Student Podcast, where we have tips to help your child succeed in school. Today we're talking about technology and sexuality and how they affect your child's social environment at school. I'm John Fuller, and my co-host is our Vice President of Parenting and Youth here at Focus on the Family, Danny Huerta. John, technology is everywhere. It's a fast-paced world, and it's a 24-7 type of world right now with technology. And parents consistently are coming to uh, many counselors, not just me, about this topic, and even teachers and, and principals trying to figure out, what do we do? Our kids are spending way too much time. They're distracted. There's moodiness that's, uh, that, that happens. And also, just grades are plummeting for some of the kids that just can't handle it well. Kids are needing boundaries and limits around technology. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just a matter of, of time before a child may run into pornography or violent content or other things. We just have to be aware of this as parents. So you've counseled a lot of parents over the years, Danny. I wonder if you've had a situation where you felt, I'm going to turn this around a little bit, because of the parents' use of technology that kids expressed, you know, I can't get in. They won't talk to me. They're too busy. This is a little too frequent now, John. Oh. Uh, I think we're, we could all be guilty of a moment where we were supposed to be listening, and then we looked down and and saw that we weren't listening very well, or looked up. I should say looked up. We were mm-hmm. looking down. We looked up yeah. and saw that we were just were not listening well to our child. But there are some parents that are obsessed and consumed by either social media or other things happening, and they know who they are. Most of the time in this case, in this one particular case I'm thinking about, this child said, my mom is constantly on the phone. I feel unimportant. This child felt tons of anger towards Hmm. his mom. She did not realize she was spending so much time. But when we broke it down and got some feedback from dad and others in the home, she was. So we have have to model it. It's imperative for us as parents to get a handle on this. And, of course, we can't help our kids if we don't have control of our, our, our habits and have those boundaries in place that you talked about. We have Dr. Kathy Cook with us for this episode, and she is so good on this topic Uh, Kathy is the founder of Celebrate Kids Incorporated, and this conversation with Jim Daly and me is uh, really based on her book, Screens and Teens, Connecting with Our Kids in a Wireless World. And uh, here's more from that discussion about technology addiction. Hey, let's start with technology and how it rewrites our children's brains, Mm -hmm. kind of the physiology of what technology is doing to our kids today. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really fascinating, Jim, that the brain isn't finished until age 25. And, you know, if you're parenting... (laughs) That's that's true. I mean, if you're parenting (laughs) a 26-year-old, maybe you're really disappointed to find that out, like... But, but we're always learning, obviously. We can learn today, even if we're much older. But through the age of 25, the neurons in the brain are connected through the things that we do frequently. So when we're born, only 20% of the communication connections are hardwired by our creator. That's why all of us will learn language. All of us will roll over, creep, crawl, walk eventually. But That's 80, the 20%, 20% yeah. right. So 80% of the communication connection occurs after children are born, which is why parenting matters so much, as does education and, and church. Any place the kids go off in is going to influence the way that they believe life is supposed to occur for them. And so if kids are on technology all the time, that's going to wire their brain to expect everything to be quick 
everything to be vibrant, everything to be loud, everything to be about them. And this is why when they read a textbook, if you will, it's like boring because their <laughs> name isn't in there. Well, welcome to Life 101. You know, that's, life doesn't work like technology works. So that's why it can become really, really hard. And that's why I think Kirk made the movie Connect and why I wrote the book and why we're here today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in fairness, we've got to admit the research uh, on that brain maturation because boys tend to be about 25, girls about 22, 23. Mm-hmm. So once again, that's girls are ahead for a lot of us. But yeah, that's yeah. not a news <laughs> Especially if you have teen boys. Yeah. You know, that's the truth. Uh, let's talk about that average mom or dad uh, who may be addicted to their own phone or tablet. Oh. Yeah, let's start with the... <laughs> let's start where it's hard. Okay. <laughs> where it's hard. Um, give us that advice about modeling and your kids need, you need to be careful about what your kids are watching you do as a parent, right? Seriously. I love that you started there. Yeah. I, I hope people listen to the whole show. Um, <laughs> no, because that's what kids tell me, Jim. They, you know, I wish my mom would turn off her phone. I wish my dad would get off of the websites. So it is here to stay. As you said, it's good. It's not bad in and of itself. Um, I want to encourage parents to be fully present to their children, which means that the device is not on their belt or in their pocket. It's actually maybe in a whole other room. Especially when you're at home. Yeah, right, right. There's really no excuse. But all of us are distracted by the ting, right? You know, you hear that you have an incoming message, and now we're like, oh, shoot, was that important? You Should start I to have... salivate. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what was that? An old science experiment, right? With yeah, dogs. Yeah, dog, well, yeah. And we do. And that's proof. I mean, it's. We're laughing, but it's not funny, right? Because that is proof of the addiction of that dopamine drop in the brain. And and that's why it's so hard for us to give it up. But you know what, guys? If we're not willing, why would our kids be willing? If we don't show them that they matter more to us than that toy and that communication that could take place with that other person, then they're they're not going to be fully available to us. And it's going to be a tragic thing. Mm -hmm. That's so true. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that we've tried to do well at our home is, Mm -hmm. you know, Gene and I are pretty good about putting the phones away when we walk in the door and you know we may reference them a couple times before bed just to make sure there's no emergency but i think fairly good at that but um talk about that in terms of how to contain it at home um you know having the kids put it away not take it to their bedroom Mm -hmm. those are common things that we've done absolutely you know i think a charging station at night is totally appropriate you know i would love for when the children are awake, for us to be tech-free as much as possible, meaning that dad checks the bank account when the kids are in bed, that mom does her Pinterest recipe scrolling when the kids are napping or in bed, and that if we're using technology, maybe we're using it together for fun or we're researching where we're going to go on the family vacation in July. But as much as possible, reading together, exploring together, playing together, that's when emotions connect. That's when relationships build. And we can all do this. We can get our kids back if we're willing to be brave. And here's the thing, guys, to prioritize the relationship. Do we want to be in relationship with our children? Children tell me that they know when it feels like an obligation that mom is asking, how was your day? Versus a mom who really wants to press in and find out. No, really. How was your day? You know, what brought you joy today? And what what confused you today? And what can we do tonight together? Um, Do we want to know our kids? And you gentlemen know that when children are known, it matters to them. When children know that they're known, they feel safe and secure, right? They're willing to risk. They're willing to be vulnerable. And this is what kids tell me, Jim. Dr. Kathy, I'm afraid to start a heavy conversation because my mom will be distracted and then I'm going to have to start over. 
And it's too hard. Right. So if they have something they want to share with a mom or a dad and it's heavy, you know, they were bullied or they were confused by what a kid did or they're they they want to take a babysitting job, but they're really not sure if they should do that or if they should go with their friends. And they want to reason that out with mom and they want mom's insight. Praise God. But mom's got her phone in her hand. Mm. Because she's wondering if there's going to be an incoming text, which is legitimate. But that communication is legitimate. However, to a child, it feels like I am less important. Intrusion. Hmm. Ooh, powerful word. So when children feel that, then they're less willing to engage. And kids do tell me that if it's an important topic, it's going to be heavy and hard. I don't want to start to then have to restart. There's so many questions circulating in my head when you say these things. Mm -hmm. Because on the one side, I could hear a parent, especially a dad, who comes home and says, well... Dr. Kathy, it's important. I got to stay connected. Mm-hmm. My world's 24 7, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Remember when technology came in? It was going to free us up yes. to give us more time with family, and it's done exactly the opposite. Yes. And it hasn't done the free time thing. It's consumed us until we go to bed. We, if we have let a, it. We have allowed it. Yeah. Exactly. We have allowed it to consume us. So that's one thing is that attitude that a, a parent might have, which is I've got to stay connected. So let me ask you, and then I'll get to the next question, which is on the kid's side. But how does a parent who is addicted, let's just call it what it is. And when the, the ding goes and the dopamine drops in your brain, you feel a compulsion and you know I'm talking to you. You mm-hmm. know who mm-hmm. I If I'm saying it and you're going, oh, that's me. Okay, what do we do to start breaking that habit? We recognize it's a habit that's unhealthy. And we choose to change. And probably accountability is necessary. It might be a spouse, a roommate, might even be an older child. And we, we agree together to make changes. I, I believe in the pronoun we. We need to make some changes here is way more inviting than a parent saying to a child, you need to turn that off and put that down. <laughs> so if we can use the we pronoun and model for our kids and let them even help us, because we are living and learning and working and loving in a community called the family. There's nothing wrong with kids earning the right to have some accountability or be the, even accountability for us. Otherwise, we have a pastor, a best friend, a coworker to to help us with that reaction. I do think putting it in another room out of sight out of mind is valuable. I also find that having alternatives visible really matters for adults and for kids. So having a board game on the coffee table and a jigsaw puzzle on a card table in the corner and a Sudoku book and a coloring book and the colored pencils and a football, basketball, soccer ball at the back door so that we come in from church and we go, hey, let's go shoot hoops because we see that there's something else we can do. Dr. Kathy, I want to move to the content of the book and we've been touching on it, but very specifically the lies that you referenced that so many uh, teenagers particularly, but so many parents and teenagers believe. Um, One is I'm the center of my own universe. Now, we point to the teenage world as being rather narcissistic, self-focused, but that's the human condition, actually. But in the teen years, it seems to be illuminated because they just haven't had life experience yet. They haven't learned that it's not all about you. Mm -hmm. They're still living off of this idea that I'm at the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Why do we need to shake them loose? And how do we do that when it comes to technology? Well, right. You know, and, and all of us, when we were their age, probably felt we were the center, but we grew out of that, right? And yes. we had, you know, we had a culture that said, no, you're wrong. Now the whole culture is screaming, we're each the center of our own universe. You know, the like factor, you know, one of the stories I tell is that when I was a child, if the phone rang, I had to answer it. We had no clue who was there. We didn't even have voice. And you had to get up and go answer Exactly. It. <laughs> and everybody in the home could listen to the whole conversation I was having because it was attached to the wall. And now when my phone rings, I can look at it and go, oh, I'm not in the mood. 
right. and pretend that person doesn't exist. Uh. You know, when we were kids, we developed a roll of film and paid for it all, even if the pictures were bad. Now you take a picture and you can correct it and, and show it to the world and get a like factor. So we think we're the center. So again, they come to it legitimately. Mm-hmm. We need to stand against the tide and make sure that they understand that every person was created in the image of God and every person has value and God is the center and always will be, has a right to be there. None of us are more important than anybody else and none of us have the same you know, equivalency, if you will, of God. So, so, so important. So we've got to stop treating our kids like they're the center. And how do we prepare them in that way? How do we jolt them? them in a healthy way to make sure that they're at least on the path to becoming the non-center of the universe. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think serving together is really valuable. I believe that children serving with groups of kids in a school or a church is valuable. When a family serves together, when your family collects diapers for the Pregnancy Resource Center, when your family goes and serves the homeless and the hungry, when you go and you scrub down all the toys in the Sunday school room, you know, and they're disinfected for the next week, you serve together together. The mom and the dad and the kids have conversations that are really rich. And the kid gets to say, you know, dad, how did you feel when you gave away your shoes? (laughs) You know, and the dad gets to express his emotion. And then how did you feel? And the son says, man, the same thing happened. Daddy, I have more shoes I could have brought. Could we come back next Saturday? I mean, it gives me chills because when you serve, you get your eyes off of yourself, right? And you discover that not everybody is like you. Not everybody lives like you. Not everybody believes what you believe, and that's okay. And you, and so I think that's a huge thing. You know, let me ask you in that respect, Kathy. The um, excuse can be, "I'm busy." Oh, but we've got to be very careful as parents because what are the important lessons that you want to learn? I want to make sure that the listener is connecting that those dots there. That I said, teens are the center of their universe. How do you practically go about uh, positioning them in a healthy way emotionally? And you're saying volunteer together. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure we highlight that. What you're saying is so true. Make time to do it. Absolutely. What are your priorities? What do you say are your priorities and what is showing up? And what's your vision for your family? And who do you want to launch? You know, do you have a vision for your children? I, I pray you do. And it probably gets revised every once in a while as your children indicate more of their giftings and their delights. But who are you wanting to help them become? And serving will rock the world. That's how kids discover their gifts, uh-huh. their passions, their joys. And if I could say, shouldn't love compel us? Right? God's love compels him toward us. Our love for people should compel us toward them. And if we are believers, we ought to be loving. We ought to be other-centered Children tell me all the time, Dr. Kathy, there's a disconnect between what I'm hearing on a Sunday and what we're living on a Monday. (laughs) Now we're getting to it. I respect that. I have compassion. Busyness is the work of the devil, if I can say it that way. Can we make the choices that Mm. honor our children and honor our marriages? Well, that's good. That's lie one. I'm the center of the universe, and I get that. And all of us as human beings have to fight that, not just teens and and young people. Another one is I deserve to be happy all the time, and it kind of fits with the first one here. Mm -hmm. Um, I deserve to be happy all the time is being screamed at us as a culture, especially the media, 10 ways to be happy, 10 ways to do this, to be happy, and explain that to us. Right. And let me start And by... is there a problem with it? It, it? Being happy, is it a sin to be happy? Oh, such a good point. So let me, let me say two things to start. No, it isn't. Um, my concern about happiness is that if they believe that they deserve to be happy all the time, that's how they make decisions, to stay happy. 
And we who have lived longer know that decisions for happiness will often cause the exact opposite to occur, right? Mm. And um, we end up maybe in a hard place. You know, if I wanted to be happy all the time, I'd eat what I want and, and, you know, go to sleep if I want and study if I want. And, oh, my goodness, my life would be very different from what it is today. So that's part of it. I'm not the, – the opposite of the lie is not unhappiness, right? The other thing that I have a real concern about with this is the spiritual implications that happiness is my right because now they treat God as if it's his job to keep them happy hmm. or make them happy. <clears throat> And so, they get upset if he doesn't. Absolutely. If they don't look at the dropout rate from church and look at the dropout rate from faith, well, God didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted. And so therefore I've given up on God. I hear it all the time. You guys probably do too. Mm-hmm. They think they know they're the center of the universe. So they have a right to declare what is best for them. And they should direct God rather than the other way around. And we need to do a better job in our churches and with our family devotions to make sure that they understand that God is the center and he has a right. So those are some of the introductory thoughts about happiness. They think happiness is their right because everything is now and new and about them and you can win any game you play. And the restart button, like I really like it. You guys do too, right? Sure. If I get home to where I live and my internet is out, I can unplug it, wait 20 seconds, plug it back in and magic happens. It's a beautiful (laughs) thing. But we who have lived longer know that our heart did not come with the reboot button. And today happened and today causes tomorrow. And so we have to be very alert to that and make sure that our children are understanding that joy is the possibility, right? For Jesus' followers, for Christ's followers, through a dynamic, growing relationship with Jesus Christ, we can have joy in all circumstances. Dr. Kathy Cook brings up such great points and has such great encouragement for us as we go deeper with our kids about technology and have those conversations with them about the proper use and Uh, improper use of tech, we're going to invite you to stop by our website to get a copy of her book, Screens and Teens, Connecting with Our Kids in a Wireless World. Uh, We are listener-supported. We rely on your generosity to produce podcasts like this and uh, really have an outreach around the world to help parents make a generous donation today of any amount, and we'll send a copy of that book, Screens and Teens, as our thank you gift for donating to the ministry of Focus on the Family. Just go to focusonthefamily.com slash thrivingstudent to make that contribution. While you're there, look for our free five-part video series to help your child have their best year ever. One of the episodes is about making safe social connections, which, of course, relates right to what we're talking about. And Danny, uh, Dr. Cook talked about kids thinking, I'm the center of the universe. I'm guessing... The kids thought that long before the introduction of technology into, you know, five, six-year-old lives. But she did talk about how families serving together helps us break out of that mindset of me being the center of the universe. Now, you've done some things as a family. Why don't you share one or two things that you thought were pretty effective at helping be other-centric, not me-centric? Yeah, she's so right. Serving can transform a family, a child, and the person you're serving. It's the served and the serving people that, that are transformed by this. We served at an uh, assisted living facility and went together as a family and spent some time with uh, this older lady, uh, Roseanne. And what a tremendous opportunity for each of us to have our role within that. And it was important for each of us to have a job. My daughter, my son uh, drew out a, a card. Uh, and obviously my wife and I, our job was to be there having conversation and leading the conversation with Roseanne, just spent some time with her. 
and and then decided to pray for her and continue to do that. And we've done other service projects through the church. The church always, churches around the, the country have service projects to get involved in. I would encourage families to do that because it does create a sense of purpose, a sense of mission together, but it also brings true satisfaction, true joy, uh, true happiness, like Kathy was talking about in, in when, when she was talking with Jim. Mm. Well, let's move to another dynamic of uh, social life in the school setting, which is what do you do when your child hears something at school that you're not ready for them to hear? You're not expecting it. Um, we've had situations, particularly in fourth grade, one of my kids got exposed to all sorts of stuff. There were other boys on the school ground with, with phones, and they were showing stuff to my son at fourth grade that I was not ready for him to deal with. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to deal with it then. It was frustrating. This is a tough thing that we have to face. Sexuality is really coming in the back door, particularly in the schools. We had an interview with Mary Flo Ridley about this kind of thing and how to deal with it. Uh, She's a respected author and a speaker on the topic of sexuality and kids. And she met with Jim Daly and me to discuss this further. You have an analogy in your curriculum where you talk about two six-year-old boys, boy one and boy two. Uh, Talk about that because I found that very insightful. Well, we found this out with our firstborn child. When you send your firstborn child into kindergarten or first grade, and you look into that classroom, you think you're seeing all five-year-olds or all six-year-olds, but you're actually, your child is going to school with the oldest sibling of anyone in that room. Hmm. Because a firstborn six-year-old, the scope of their world is six years old. They tell six-year-old jokes. Mm -hmm. They watch six-year-old television. That is as far as their horizon goes. But the person sitting next to them may have a 16-year-old brother. Mm -hmm. And that six-year-old lives in a 16-year-old world. And he's exposed to everything that his 16-year-old brother knows about and hears about. He just knows a lot more. Probably knows bigger words. Bigger words. More grown-up words. Exactly. And so your family is the age of your oldest child, and everyone else just keeps up. Mm -hmm. Well, and and the point that caught me is that when your six-year-old sits down at school, that six-year-old with a 16-year-old brother is sitting right next to him having lunch. Exactly. And they're talking. Mary Flo, in fact, uh, when your daughter was in kindergarten, I believe, you have a story about that. What happened with her? Well, when Jill was in kindergarten, she went off to school and was a little bit sad that her best friend wasn't in her classroom. So we made a big deal about, oh, this is going to be wonderful because kindergarten is all about making new friends. You'll make new friends. Mm. But by the third week of kindergarten, she came home and said, um, oh, Mom, I made a new friend today, but I don't think you're going to let me play at her house. And I said, oh, really, honey? Well, why not? And it was very shocking. I'll just warn our audience. It Mm -hmm. was very shocking. But she said, well, after school, her 17-year-old brother watches her, and she watches her 17-year-old brother have sex. What? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Of course, that was just a horrific situation, which we... You know, once we recuperated, we're able to call the school, and it was, you know, they dealt with it, and it was resolved. But in the meantime, I said, well, Jill, I am so sad for your friend. That's terrible. But I'm glad you knew that wasn't a good situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How did you know that? And she said, well, you said that sex is supposed to be for people who are married. 
and they're not married, Mommy. Mm. I asked. <laughs> oh, man. So she asked. That's good, though, that basic lesson. It's sticking with her. But Jill also said, Mommy, Daddy said that sex is very private and mm. no one is supposed to watch. Mm. And I remember that on occasion, if a commercial would come on, we were so conservative about the television we would watch, but if something would come on that was inappropriate, he would click the TV off, maybe to the Weather Channel or something, but he would say, I hope they're married. You know what? That's very private, and no mm. one should ever watch. Oh, what a good lesson. That's great. So it wasn't just don't, don't, don't. It was don't, but here's what's right. Yes. That's a much better way to help them with their own sexuality. Uh, Mary Flo, I think a lot of parents, the reason that we're nervous about this is we didn't get the talk. It wasn't modeled for us. We grew up in an era when... You know, you may have just gotten it through your friends at school. Exactly. That was kind of it. That was um, it. But as we move through that, to find the courage to simply embrace it, know that it's God's design, that it's beautiful, that uh, human sexuality in the context of God's design is a wonderful gift, and to celebrate that in a in a marriage context is right. Um, let me ask you, though, when you're kind of probing, which I am right now. Mm -hmm. uh, my probing tactic has been this with my boys. Uh, what are you guys thinking about girls? <laughs> yes. Because boys are so clear on it. Oh, they got cooties mm -hmm. or whatever exactly. it might be. Yeah. Right. Is that a fair way to kind of gauge where they're at or am I being snowed? No, you are not being snowed. I think you would be able to see that a mile away because that dawning process happens at a different age for every person. And so I think that's wonderful that you're asking those questions and that you're initiating it. I think so many parents think, well, I'll wait till they come to me. But I do think it's important for parents to open the door and to say, I like the phrase, have you ever wondered? Uh. For example, have you ever wondered exactly how a baby's born? I'm not sure I've ever gotten the chance to explain that to you. Have you ever wondered how a baby is made? Mm. So that... You're inviting them and their curiosity to be brought right to you. Really, your your approach is to, like drip irrigation. Yes. You, you feed the child along the way in an age-appropriate manner from three or four, five, six, and seven, and you're leading to a point. You still subscribe to the idea of having an overnighter somewhere with your son or daughter uh, to have the discussion, although it, it won't be coming as a shock. And you warn parents, and I want you to talk about this, not to leave it to the big talk. If you've done that, you probably missed the mark. Well, if you've done that, I like to tell parents it's never too late. But you've missed some wonderful opportunities to have been building on this all throughout their childhood. There will still be moments that are surprising and shocking. You're giving them some pretty shocking information. But I do think at that preteen age, that's when you make a transition from let's really talk about God's design to some of the realities that you're going to face, physically how you're going to be changing and how you're going to be interacting in relationship to other people. Mm -hmm. You, in fact, use the illustration of the sponge. I like that. In fact, you brought a prop. <laughs> For a reminder. With yeah. you. Just a little reminder. <laughs> That's a big sponge that I use to wipe my car with, yeah. probably. <laughs> but uh, tell us about that analogy because I think it sticks and it's a good one for parents to grab a hold of. Actually, the idea of the sponge came at the same time as the story that I just told about Jill. Mm -hmm. That night, as I was pondering what had happened that day, I thought, you know what? 
Jill has absorbed all of this information, and there must be sort of a sponge in her mind, a sponge that you could label curiosity about sexual things. Children are just born curious. They want to know about their bodies and other people's bodies and, and babies we talk, we and kissing. And we talk about kids being a sponge and soaking up information. Exactly. So if you will take the opportunity as a parent to fill their sponge and not with one big picture on mm. one day that is a full of all the information where most of it won't absorb. Instead, like you were saying, the drip, drip, more will be absorbed one small conversation at a time. And think about the sponge in this way, too. If we do not fill their sponge, if we leave it dry, then they go off to school with a dry sponge. Mm. And the first person they meet that explains anything to them, that's what's absorbed Mm. in their sponge. But if we take the opportunity to fill their sponge, then they go off to school or go out into the world with a full sponge. Mm. And as you know, a full sponge if something else is poured on top of it, it just sort of rolls off. Mm. So they have the truth now, and they don't have to believe a myth. Exactly. That their friend at school told them. Right, right. And because their sponge is full, they're not as vulnerable to what they might hear at school. You might even think of it as an inoculation, that they have been given some information at home, and so they can compare that to what they hear at school. But if they go off with a dry sponge, then what they hear at school becomes their first impression, and we all know there's a very powerful thing in the first impression. Mary Flo talked about one continuous conversation about sexuality through a child's development. I think that is so key. We go from me to you to me and you, and then to we. We go through a, a conversation that takes a child from who they are created in Christ as a young child physically and then build on that through character and self-control and then onward to what does it mean for me and you to be different, boy and girl to be different, and then to we. How does, how does this all flow together to create mm-hmm. the full picture of sexuality that God wants us to get by the time we're uh, with other kids thinking about dating and and uh, going towards marriage and setting a vision and a tone for that. I love what Mary Flo talks about regarding the dripping into a sponge, that understanding of the full picture of sexuality and not just one talk. Yeah, I have really appreciated as well her proactive nature of, of the conversations that you have with your child. We've tried very intentionally to be straightforward and to use you know real names for body parts and for the act. And not to shy away from that, because I really believe that a, a child who's armed with truth can reject some of the uh, glamorization falsely that kids attribute to sexuality, and the attraction uh, kind of gets robbed a little bit of its allure when they know the bigger picture, as you're talking about, and they know mm-hmm. the truth, not in just hearsay. I'm grateful for what you've shared there, Danny, and for the conversation with Mary Flo. We do have resources. This is hard. This is awkward for a lot of parents. You didn't grow up in a home where you talk about it. So we're mindful of that, and we've got a lot of age-appropriate materials for you to find at the website, focusonthefamily.com slash thrivingstudent. It's going to help you have those conversations, continue moving the ball forward so they can have the right information. While you're there, there's a particularly helpful article called The Talk, and Danny, you just described a lot of what the talk is about, right? I mean, it's it's a, an ongoing conversation. I believe it's about building a sexual intelligence in our kids. The talk is one piece of a larger picture 
that we were just talking about right now that begins early and then ends with a great union with a wife mm. on the a wife or husband at the end of that. Building sexual intelligence in our kids needs to be just as or more important than the, the cognitive intelligence and the emotional intelligence that culture talks about. This one is one that God wants us to get well because it can control a child and point him in a direction that gets them super distracted mm. in their life. Yeah, I appreciate that. And so, again, the website is focusonthefamily.com slash thriving student to find that series called The Talk as well as a five-part video series, Best Year Ever, to help your kids uh, kick off the school year well and stay strong throughout the school year. There's also an opportunity for you to donate to the ministry, and we're going to invite you to do that so we can continue to offer great resources to parents literally around the world. Once again, that website, focusonthefamily.com slash thrivingstudent. Well, next time we're going to be talking about how your child can stay physically fit during the school year. If you go by the biggest eating problem, which is uh, being overweight, uh, I would say that uh, the majority are eating just too much and probably not making great choices. More from that interview with Dr. Paul Reiser on the next episode of Thriving Student. On behalf of Danny Huerta and the entire team here, I'm John Fuller. Thanks for listening.